Lily Jamali is a co-host of the California Report at KQED. The radio show she co-hosts covers a variety of topics regarding California, including the economy, immigration, and education. While at KQED, Lily has covered the utilities company PG&E, which announced bankruptcy at the beginning of 2019 after being found responsible for causing wildfires in the state. In May, Lily released an investigation about PG&E's Fire Victim Trust, which was set up to help those affected by fires over the years. Lily found that much of the money was going to overhead costs, like paying lawyers, and a very small amount was going to victims. Lawmakers are now seeking a probe into the trust. Before joining KQED, Lily was an anchor for Bloomberg Markets in Canada and a reporter and producer for Reuters TV. She's also worked for TV stations in New York and Northern California. After graduating from UCLA as an undergrad, Lily went on to obtain her master's in journalism at Columbia, as well as an MBA in finance from NYU. And before we begin, just a little note on this episode. Lily was gracious enough to record her voice while she was in a car during a heat wave. About 20 minutes into the episode, she had to switch recording devices. So you'll hear a noticeable difference in the sound at that point. Without further ado, Lily Jamali. Well, Lily... Thank you so much for coming on the American Dispatch podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Gabe. So I wanted to first get a sense of how you got into this uh, profession. Lily, where did you grow up and what led you to become a journalist? Well, I'm going to give you the abridged version of where I grew up because it's um, a little bit of an involved story, but I was born and partly raised in Virginia Beach, Virginia, Um, and I ended up moving to Cleveland, Ohio for a little bit and sort of settled down in Southern California by the time I was, you know, in middle school. So mostly I grew up in L.A. and then San Diego and then back to LA for college. So I've been, um, you know, a California girl for <laughs> quite a long time. And after college, I um, was sort of figuring out what I wanted to do. I knew I really liked to write, and that was really a big part of why I um, ended up kind of gravitating towards journalism. After college, I took a backpacking trip through Central America, and that's when I really decided I wanted to be a journalist specifically um you know just was was there something on that trip was there something on that trip that that pushed you in that direction so yeah I mean this trip to Central America was um you know I I really just went down there because I wanted to um really hone my Spanish language skills and just be exposed to a place that I had never gotten to travel to. I got really interested. I remember actually I was sitting in this, um, I was very interested in things like, uh, for example, coffee and how coffee was produced was very interesting to me. And so I end up at this coffee cooperative. I think it was in Matagalpa, Nicaragua. And this 
reporter who must have been like six foot five, uh, blonde guy, just sort of seemed larger than life. He kind of burst through the door at the front office of this coffee cooperative. And he's like, I'm from the Houston Chronicle. And <laughs> I was sitting in this chair, just like looking up at this person going, what in the hell is that guy doing here? And it was just kind of this, I, I wonder if that had something to do with why I gravitated towards journalism in some part, because it just seemed really interesting. I felt like I was in this extremely random place and lo and behold, this guy from the Chronicle shows up and is looking for a story about you know the economics of the region and of fair trade. And um, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> <laughs> what percentage of me being a journalist has anything to do with that? But I kind of think, looking back, I must have thought that looks kind of cool and really interesting. Um, and I was just there because I was I was fascinated by the topic of coffee and the fair trade economy in Central America at that point. Um, so, you know, my after college, I ended up taking that trip and then moving um, to Redding, California. I ended up in Sacramento and calling all the smaller uh, TV stations in Northern California to see if they would give me a job or an internship or anything. And Janice Osborne at KRCR in Redding, California, picked up the phone. <laughs> she was the receptionist there. And she put me in touch with the uh, producer. And I think, you know, within a couple of days, they were like, come on and just intern for us. And I did that for a month. And then uh, I was a line producer. That was my first job in, in broadcasting. Okay. Okay. So you first started out in in broadcasting. How did you make your way then to doing radio and uh and then we could talk about a little talk a little bit about the california report and what that's about yeah so i did tv um for probably i don't know 12 years or something like that um i started at krcr was a line producer there for a year and then i moved up to i don't want to say moved up i just moved on to a job as an on-air correspondent or a reporter an on-air reporter there um, and I think actually having been a line producer was such an amazing experience. It gave me so many skills at a place that small, you know, you get to do everything as a producer, you're cutting your own tape, you're writing tons of voiceovers and you're managing your field crews. And, um, it's just like so hands-on. And then when I became a reporter, I really knew how a producer thinks and like what you need as a producer. And so I was very sort of like service oriented <laughs> as a reporter, like, what do you need today to my producer? And um, and I learned so much there. I mean, I am so indebted to the news director there, uh, Jennifer Scarborough, who was there for probably 20, 25 years. She recently moved on from KRCR. Um, but you know, she and I, she taught me so much. Um, another, you know, Andrea Borba, who is now at KPIX here in San Francisco, terrific reporter, was, um, a former producer turned reporter. I mean, there's just so many people and in that environment, it's so collaborative. You're learning from other people all the time. And so if you find a place like that, it's, just a very lucky thing. Um, and then, you know, from there I went to grad school in Col in New York. I went to Columbia Journalism School um, and got my first job at a TV station in New York, 
um, as a, you know, first a freelancer, but then was covering the night side beat. And then they assigned me to cover the NYPD and the courts. Um, so that was New York One, fabulous experience. Really learned so much. Another place where you get to do a lot. It's very hands-on. It's kind of grueling. I mean, a lot of long days, but... Um, you know, it was also, I learned a lot and covering the NYPD alone, I could, you know, tell you, spend hours on just that <laughs> with you. But from New York one, I ended up freelancing. That's how I got into radio. I really wanted to, um, to leave the States and do some stories abroad. So I, I bought a one-way ticket to Kyrgyzstan in 2011 and, Wow. Because I knew that having done a little bit of radio freelancing in New York, um, this show, The World, fabulous show um, co-produced by the BBC and PRI, I knew that they had an appetite. I didn't just go there like, oh, let's see what happens. You know, I knew that they were going to buy some of my stories because I had talked to the editor there about it, who was a wonderful, you know, guide for me. It was a former correspondent himself, Aaron Schachter. Um, so... You know, I had that guarantee that I was going to sell a couple of stories at least, pay my way there, and then figure out, you know, getting back and all of that. So, you know, ended up coming back, becoming a financial reporter. I got my MBA in New York upon returning from some of my foreign exploits, and um, now I'm a business reporter. Got it. Okay. Would you, so you are the co-host of the California Report along with Saul Gonzalez. Um, can, can you explain for our listeners what the California Report is and what sort of co- stories do you cover? I mean, I have to tell you, I am a huge fan first and foremost of the California Report and, and of KQED because when I moved to Reading in California, uh, when I moved to Reading, California would have been 2004. Um, I had been like a, a coastal kid for most of my life and it was really different. You know, it was like, I had never lived in a place that, you know, didn't have millions of people basically. Um, and I remember driving to work every day and hearing the California report and it felt like kind of a, you know, a connection to the rest of the area of the region and the state. And it just, I don't know, I just took such, uh, pleasure in hearing the the show every morning as I was on highway 44 heading to you know headquarters to channel 7 headquarters um so the California report I think of it as um you know it's had many iterations but I really try to think of it as the newscast of record for Californians um ideally it's everything you need to listen to to have a handle on what's going on in the state Um, We, you know, have affiliates all over the place from, you know, we have uh, two stations that we pull stories from in Los Angeles. We have KVPR in in Fresno, Valley Public Radio. And then we have lots of stations in places like Santa Rosa, KRCB there, Um, and then KCHO, which is now North State Public Radio in Chico. Um, we have affiliates in the Inland Empire. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. There's just there's actually a lot of them. And so we're really getting this incredible diet of stories from everywhere in the state, big and small. 
we try not to, I mean, it's hard because you're, we are based, I'm based in the Bay Area, Saul is based in LA. And so you do end up gravitating towards some of those more, you know, the stories that tell the stories of that place, of those places. But it's really important. And I think um, as someone who did start in Reading and really appreciates the stories that are happening in smaller communities, um, it's so important to us to get, you know, into more rural parts of the state, um, you know, not just talk about, um, you know, not just rerun things that are going to be on KQED or, um, you know, KCRW in LA. Yeah, yeah, getting into some of those places that have uh, that have news deserts. Um, I wanted to quickly say I'm gl- I I appreciate that you said that you moved along to another job rather than move up because that's something that I'm trying to. That's like a that's that's a language that I'm also trying to like relearn just within sort of like the the journalism world because it's like okay wait wh- how wh- how have we be- why have we been taught that like local to regional to national to international journalism is why, why should there be that hierarchy there? Is, is there really like an, an, you know, is there really like an an important hierarchy there? So I know I, I appreciate that. I wanted to dig. So I want to start digging into your coverage of PG and E, which has been uh, a major focus of your reporting. Um, I want to quickly highlight a story that you recently released. This was an investigation into the Fire Victim Trust. Um, I'll I'll quickly tell our re, uh, our listeners um, about this story so they understand. So basically, there was this Fire Victim Trust that was set up uh, after the campfire destroyed a lot of people's homes and took many people's lives. I uh, it was it was a couple dozen people, right? 80, 83? Is that the amount of people that? It was 85 people at least um, in the campfire. And this trust actually is, is for 2015 fires, 2017 fires here in the North Bay, and then also 2018, the one that you mentioned, the campfire. Oh, got it. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that uh, correction there. So, So you found in this story through your investigation, you found that lot of the money that was in the trust was being spent on overhead fees, like lawyer fees, um, and, a, and only a very small percentage was actually going to the, to the actual victims of the, of the fires. And I saw that you just recently reported that state lawmakers have now asked the attorney general to probe the trust. Um, I think the, the reason I bring up this, this particular story, uh, is because I think it's a really good example of local journalism holding those in power accountable. But I want to I want to take a step back for a moment and I want to talk about your coverage of PG and E at large. Um, I think when the when the average person hears that oh there's a story about a utility company, they may think like why, why should I care about this? It's a utility company. It's, you know, so why is it important to be covering a utility company like PG&E? Like, how is this, how is this contributing to uh, uh, the local journalism in the area? 
what what is this doing for our community here specifically with with the utility company because that, that's it's sort of like part of our kind of landscape of of local government here that that I haven't really spoken about much on on the show mm-hmm well, I will say, I mean, not to make any light of this topic, but as a business reporter, I remember, you know, you, you have tech, you have, uh, you know, the financial sector, and there's so, so many different places you can focus your energies as a business reporter. And I would always look at the utility sector and go, oh, gosh, that is like the last thing I would ever be interested in covering just as a as a straight financial reporter. Um when I came here, uh, one of the first stories I covered was the campfire. And for me, that was sort of a homecoming of, you know, that's the, the, the worst kind of homecoming you can imagine, going back to the North State for the first time in 12 years, where I started as a reporter, um, and then seeing it on fire like that was just heartbreaking. And um, I remember as a young reporter and producer, um, when we covered fires in Reading in 20, 2004, 2005, fire season ended pretty much in, you know, September at the very latest. And what I remember being so struck by was being in the North State, watching this fire burn in November, where it was it was really cold. I remember it being really cold at night. And I was just like, this is something feels so weird about that. And then I realized, yeah, it's because it's November. And, you know, back then those fires would never get, you know, would never have continued to burn into October and November. And they certainly never reached the scale that we have seen. So it was really just like this sign of the times that we were in and the role that, you know, climate change really setting in. Um, why does it matter that we cover utilities? I mean, it's, it's, it's such a great question, one that I've thought about a lot, you know, we can live without power, right? But most of us can't imagine a life without it. Um, we depend on it for so much of our day to day. And so I think it's just become this fundamental service that we depend on. And, and it's almost, I mean, it's almost akin to, you know, clothes or food like it's so necessary to what we do every day as as citizens of this state and of this country um and so when it's taken away like through these power shutoffs that the utilities now do in order to prevent fires when they can um or in the case of rolling blackouts which we are potentially facing this week during the first big heat wave of the year Um, When it's taken away, we're not cool with that. I mean, and it makes sense that we're not cool with that because we live in the fifth largest economy in the world. So the idea that power would be taken away, it just, there's something so, you know, odd and regressive about that. Um, And then, you know, the more important thing even than having power is I think one thing that I don't think has really made it to the East Coast press in a way that really hits home, but we are it's hitting home for us here, is that every year it's a life and death thing now, these fires. You know, our utilities are causing fires that kill people. Um, they killed people for multiple years over the last half decade, and that's just something that has become part of our reality, just like the power shutoffs have become part of the reality for Californians. So, um, you know, in that sense, 
I think as a local reporter at a really amazing local outlet like KQED, I mean, I am so proud to get to work for KQED. It is truly a community-driven, mission-driven organization. I'm, I'm really glad that we are paying so much attention, not just to the fire itself, grabbing, you know, I, I know it's, it's attractive to national outlets to kind of parachute in and get the images and then leave, but we and a, a lot of regional uh, outlets like the San Francisco Chronicle as well or North State Public Radio, I mean, I could name, you know, 10 of those places that are sticking with the story for weeks and months and years to come. And that's where that story that you mentioned comes in. It's we are documenting the aftermath of the fires. Um, and the impact that it's having on fire survivors. And um, I'm really, I feel very privileged to get to work at a place that gives me the resources to do those stories. Hmm. Hmm. So obviously PG&E, and we, we were sort of discussing this before you came on the podcast, um, PG&E is not the only uh, sort of sector of the utilities world uh, there are other government agencies that uh, that are at play here. Um, do you do you um, are are those uh, different agencies, and perhaps you could name a couple of them? Do you feel like they are being adequately covered in in the state? So you know, I think that when we look at the landscape right now, we know that we've lost a lot of journalism jobs in the last year. We've lost a lot of outlets. Many have closed up shop. And these issues were were there well before the pandemic. Um, you know, the whole landscape has just dramatically changed. So, you know, I think back to one of the things that I um, had the privilege of doing this last couple of months was guest lecturing in a course in utility and energy regulation at UC Berkeley at the public policy school there. And Steve Weissman, who is the lecturer, the main, the teacher there, um, he was talking about what the journalism landscape looked like at the CPUC, for example, which is the California Public Utilities Commission, um, how few journalists used to cover the CPUC until the 2000-2001 energy crisis. Suddenly, you know, after that, everyone got very interested. You had a lot more reporters covering the day-to-day there. You had even some national outlets covering a lot of the goings-on at the CPUC. And I think to today, you know, 20 years have passed since then, and we're now in a similar kind of situation where these utility-caused fires are a real issue. Um, as of last year, rolling blackouts are back, you know, and we are talking about them just this week with, with the heat wave. Um, and so I think back to that moment in, you know, during the worst of the crisis where you probably had, I don't know, maybe 20 reporters covering the CPUC. Today, there's really not a lot. Um, KQED, uh, we we try our best to make sure we sit in on important hearings. We have a number of people who have covered the CPUC off and on over the years, some really talented reporters. Um, You know, just even understanding like how they structure their agenda and how they structure proposed decisions, what the procedures are. It's not for everybody, shall we say, but it's really, really important. As dry as it can be, it's really important. It has real impacts on people's lives. So, um, 
I wish that we had 20 people covering the CPUC, but we just don't. Um, I think a lot of reporters dip in and out now, um, and, and I think there is a real effort to cover it as best as we can. But, you know, I wish it was like, you know, multiple beat reporters from multiple outlets covering it at any given time, especially right now when the decisions that, that are being made at the CPUC are so important. Um, I think back to the pg e bankruptcy we covered the entire, you know, um, day to day. I think it would be called, it wasn't a trial. It was basically a hearing on whether they should approve the PG&E bankruptcy. And there was all kinds of important information that came out of that. Watching fire survivors, for example, grilling CEOs, the CEO of PG&E, the CFO. It gave us the opportunity to doorstop um, at the time, at the time, it was Bill Johnson who was the CEO of PG&E to ask him questions and get him on the record. So, because we were able to do that today, we have the former CEO of PG&E saying on the record that he that he thought that giving stock to fire victims was par for the course and that he was going to do everything he could to keep the stock up so that they would get compensated. And lo and behold, he's gone, you know, a few months later. But those sort of interactions are really important. And um, nothing replaces, you know, that face-to-face actually going to a hearing like that and getting getting that FaceTime. Yeah. So when you were saying that at one point, about uh, two dozen reporters were covering an agency like the CPUC. There are, and and now it's it's much less. There are agent. There are probably many agencies in the state that aren't being adequately covered. I I can imagine. I'm wondering what sort of and maybe you could use the CPUC as as a specific example of this. But like, what happens when there aren't enough reporters? covering looking into an agency like the cpuc or 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 you know maybe up in vallejo a good example would be the police department i mean i know there are a lot of efforts being made to uh to to fill fill in you know the voids there with open vallejo and and i know there's a the the sort of um flagship newspaper there as well but um yeah i'm curious your thoughts on that what what you think the effects are well, I mean, I'm just guessing. I don't know how many reporters covered the CPUC uh, in, you know, at the turn of the, uh, you know, it would have been around 2000, 2001. Um, but I know it was a heck of a lot more than are covering are covering the CPUC today. But there's all kinds of agencies. You know, uh, one that comes to mind is the, um, you know, the agency in charge of air quality. Um, that is a real issue that affects millions of Californians when fires are happening. That affects our kids. That affects all of our health. And the uh, impacts of breathing in wildfire smoke over long periods of time, we don't have a handle on what those long-term impacts are. But wouldn't it be great if, you know, the the agencies in charge of monitoring those things knew that there were multiple 
watchdogs keeping an eye on things at all times. And, you know, I think we're talking about state agencies, but you also mentioned Vallejo. I also think, you know, what we're seeing with city council meetings. I mean, every Tuesday there are city council meetings and county board of supervisors are meeting all across the state. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there were more than, you know, if there was a at least one person at each of those meetings, but wouldn't it be great if there were more than that? So you could rest assured that, you know, issues like the the police brutality problem in Vallejo is being tracked by credible sources each and every time that the city council meets or every time the police chief is asked to come in and deliver a, a report. Um, it's It's a real issue. And you mentioned news deserts. I think we all know that Even a place like Oakland um, probably has nowhere near the number of people covering city council than they did 20, 30 years ago. Um, I'm heartened to see things like the Oakland side. Um, I've sat in on Berkeley city council meetings where the only other, you know, news outlet in the room other than KQED was Berkeley side. And, And they kick butt. I mean, they are tweeting everything that happens in there. They're posting pictures. They are doing the more long-form enterprise story. They're setting up the meeting ahead of time and then covering what happened. So I just feel really heartened to see that. Um, But, you know, it's it's really a business model question. Um, I think that the, the way to do it remains to be, you know, the best way to do it remains to be seen. I do think that there is, um, when I think about like the fire issue alone, I do think there is a realization among citizens that paying for news is worth it. And, um, you know, I remember riding through on a, on a bike through this district with a fire chief in Moraga. A, it would have been about a year and a half ago. And he was talking about how, you know, five years ago he would ask his constituents to clear out defensible space around their property and they were like yeah 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 okay but now because they've seen what's happened over the last few years with fires they really take him seriously and there's so much more engagement and I think that that same concept applies to news Um, you know I think of every time there's now a power shut off KQED is putting out alerts on where you know what resources people need where are cooling centers that people can reach easily um how to find out if their neighborhood is going to be affected i mean i think local journalism is really stepping up in a way um for the places that are left um and and delivering something that you're not going to get from the new york times or from you know the washington post mm-hmm. well so you you actually went the the business mo- the business model question was the one I was going to ask next so you it was a it was a great segue that you brought we brought in um so you've i mean you've been at not only corporate media with when you were at Bloomberg but you have also been well you're currently with KQED which is publicly funded and also uh, supports itself through uh, you know community donations um, yes yes and corporate underwriting um, let, let's talk about just like the comparisons between those two models for, for a bit like uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of being 
a being being like a, a corporate media kind of model as opposed to something like KQED or even even um something like Berkeley side which is a nonprofit model if I'm not uh, mistaken um like where do you which one do you see as like the most successful or do you think they sort of all kind of fit in um their into their own um place in being useful like what are your thoughts on the on on just opening up a, a, a little bit beyond KQED's model well i mean i think bloomberg you mentioned is a pretty unique in example because their journalism is largely paid for by um subscriptions to a terminal that is in high demand among financial professionals so they have a lot of money and resources, and they're serving a really different audience than we are here at KQED. So I think, you know, I'll just be really honest with you. <laughs> that's that's why I did not stick around there for very long, because as much as I, I liked it there and I had I got to work with some of the best journalists in the world, literally around the world. I mean, they have, you know, like 2,500 people all over the globe. Um and if you are interviewing the president of Italy, you call the Rome Bureau and ask them, you know, what's going on and what, how, let's talk about the interview and what, what you think is important. It's just a really amazing, wonderful place in that respect. But um, KQED is, has a different mission. It's serving the community here and it is... Um, and it's not writing stories for, um, you know, financial professionals. Um, I think maybe another comparison would be public media versus like the newspaper industry. Um, you know, we've seen what's happened to newspapers. Um, we've seen the loss of classifieds and advertising over the last two decades. And that's really hit their bottom lines hard. Um, and I think what's been fascinating, and I didn't really understand this about public media until I got into it in 2018, but public media has really flourished um I, I suppose partly because of what has happened to the newspaper industry, um, we've, you know, I, th I think back to even just broadcasting in general 20 years ago, how TV and radio and including public radio was really just about ripping copy from the AP wire or, you know, looking at what's in the newspaper and turning that into a story. Whereas today um, we are expected and I think we thrive on breaking stories and really setting the news agenda on a beat. Um, and so I, I just don't think that was the case in even in public media 20 years ago. I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but so much of that original enterprise reporting was coming from newspapers. And now I think that public radio and public TV journalists see themselves increasingly as, um, you know, true journalists that are generating important community-driven stories that, you know, we want to be, um, you know, setting the agenda. And I think we're doing that in large part. And I think people are seeing that. They are giving um, in, you know, in, in ways that I don't know. I, I don't really have the numbers to share with you, but I do think there has been a boon in, um, in giving to public media as we've seen the decline of newspapers. I ask this last question to uh, everyone that I bring on the show, 
and it's an opportunity for you to give a shout out to uh, some local journalists or some local outlets um, that you think are underappreciated, need a, a little bit of love, and I would love to link their work uh, to, uh, you know, in, in this podcast episode so uh, they can get some, uh, some clicks. That's a really fun question and a really um, a thoughtful one as well. I'm going to give a shout out to Robin Epley <laughs> up in Mendocino, who I know has been on your show. Am I allowed to shout out to a, a previous guest? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fine. I'm 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 happy to I'm happy to do a double highlight of her work. <laughs> I'll give you some more as well. But Robin is just such a force. I. Um, I love her reporting. I think she's somebody, she's a California girl who is from Northern California and has done amazing service through her journalism to the community, whether it's covering the campfire or covering um, a community, the community she's in now in Mendocino County. Um, and, you know, I just feel like she gives me such hope. <laughs> I I think she is going to have a laugh when she hears this, but she does give me a lot of hope for like the future of journalism because it's, it's not a pretty picture, um, unfortunately. And, you know, I sometimes don't know what to say to aspiring journalists because I want to encourage everybody to do it because it matters. And I want to give people the resources and the opportunities to pursue it. But you're also kind of just like, you know, somehow it's like this is going to be a tough road and you don't want to like sort of paint an overly rosy picture of it either, especially since things are changing so much and we don't know what journalism is going to look like in 10 years or 20 years. So I think of Robin as being someone who busts her butt on a regular basis and does great work. I also want to shout out, um, you know, a couple people at KQED including um we just had a wonderful uh pair of people join us at KQED in the form of our new investigative hub so we have um the California newsroom helmed by Adrian Hill and then um and Aaron Glantz who is a tremendous editor who's worked closely with me on these investigations I've learned so much from both of them and what I love about them and the whole concept behind what they're doing is that they're bringing in all of the stations it's not just kqed where we have you know 70 some odd journalists in our newsroom but it's all about tying what we're doing to the people in santa rosa at krcb at north state public radio at you know kpcc and kcrw and hopefully we'll get to kvpr and kcr uh, kvcr kvcr in the inland empire so many acronyms i love it <laughs> i'm gonna stop this is getting annoying <laughs> but you know, I think that that sort of like connection, inter finding those interconnections, it makes the journalism so much better. Um, and I, I think the future is bright in that respect. Hmm. Well, no, it's funny you bring up Robin because after, and I'm sure she'd be fine me t uh, saying this, but after we ended recording, I was talking to her and, you know, li like, well, like what you were saying, I, I, I was asking her, you know, what? 
like, you know, it's sometimes hard, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, come on, man, you got this, you got this. So she's, 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 she's really an inspi- inspiring. And, uh, no, I, I, I agree, I agree with, uh, uh, your, your, uh, thoughts on her. Well, Lily, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're, you're for, for the listeners who can't, they can't see this, but Lily is in her car right now, uh, in a, in a wonderful makeshift studio, which it's really, really warm in, uh, in, in the East Bay. Uh, they're going through a heat wave right now. The, so I, I want to thank you from, uh, from the bottom of my heart again for, uh, for coming on, uh, American Dispatch. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. It was an honor to be asked to come on your show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Dispatch podcast. To hear more episodes, you can go on any of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about this podcast, go to amdipodcast.substack.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.